Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another Monday edition of our uh, live devotionals here on Facebook and also on the podcasts found on uh, iTunes or the Google Podcast Store. Um, we're excited to continue to work through the F260 Bible reading plan. Um, we have started uh, working through a lot of the prophets, and so we're looking at kind of the latter end of the uh, narrative of Israel, which at this time, if you remember, is kind of split into two nations. There is Israel, which is um, 10 tribes in the north, uh, headquartered kind of in Syria. And then there is Judah, which is the other two tribes, and they're in the south, headquartered in Jerusalem. And so there's a bit of civil war going on uh, in these prophets, and depending upon which prophets we're reading, um, they're speaking out or calling one of those nations, sometimes both of those nations, to repentance. And that's one thing, if you uh, are reading through this story, that uh, the story of God's redemption, which the Bible is just one story, the story of God redeeming his people. Um, and we see shadows of that in the Old Testament, and then we see the fullness of that in the New Testament. When Hebrews 1 says, long ago, in many ways, God spoke to his people through his prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the one who ultimately and finally redeems his people and creates his church. Um, and so when we read through the prophets, there's uh, two things that can get we could get tripped up on when we're reading it devotionally is is first prophets use a lot of uh, apocalyptic a lot of um, metaphorical language and so one problem we can get into is we can get hung up on the language and the metaphors and the analogy and that's where you can kind of actually lose the forest through the trees or lose the trees through the forest I don't remember which one's the right way but if you know the right way you can let me know. Um, and that's where we get so caught up on trying to parse out what the images mean. And we're drawing lines from the prophets to the newspapers of today. And we're trying to read through that. But the point is, is we also need to remember that th these passages um, have a historical context. And in that historical context, there were, uh, there were specific symbols, specific allegories that were kind of universal across that time to help people understand and communicate things. Um, for instance, like when you look at just uh, like on your phone, the emojis that we have, those emojis uh, in our culture communicate a, a certain level of understanding just with the imagery it displays. There's this shared imagery. And so during this time, um, there is shared imagery in the language of the prophets that we sometimes don't have ourselves and it takes a little longer for us to understand it, but it's not this uh, super secret mystical thing we have to decode. Um, the second thing is that uh, in these prophets, specifically in Isaiah, which uh, if you look at the first chapter of Isaiah, so in the FT60 Bible reading plan, we're in Isaiah chapter 6 and chapter 9 today. We see that uh, Isaiah's ministry of speaking out against the, um, or speaking as God's prophets spans a number of kings in Judah. And so when we read through the prophets, uh, another barrier in addition to just the language that's kind of unique in the prophets is, is there's a lot of history here. Um, and so that's why when reading through prophets, uh, even for myself, it's helpful for me to have a study Bible because sometimes I'm like, what, who is what and what is going on? And just looking at a study Bible note, or um, even if you have uh, a Bible that uh, those of you who are on the podcast will have nothing here, but Isaiah, it's got even my Bible, just a little um, prescript here, kind of explaining the context. That's a really helpful thing to help us understand what's going on, um, because God is speaking to a specific people group during a specific time, and it has meaning for us through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of Scripture. Um, but uh, we want to try to understand it as best we can so we don't get lost. 
in the weeds. Um, and so we are in Isaiah. Uh, we're looking at chapters six and nine, and uh, really six through nine, um, all the chapters, so six, seven, eight, and nine are all kind of this one uh chapter of the story that's going on. Those of you who are with us on Sundays when we're going through 1 Peter, um, Isaiah 8 is one of Peter's favorite passages in the book of 1 Peter. He uses Isaiah 8 when he um, begins to talk about us being living stones and, and cornerstones, which we saw at the beginning of chapter 2. And actually yesterday, those of you who are with us, um, when he said, uh, have no fear of them, uh, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 8, uh, I think in verse 12, which we'll come back to and look at uh, a little later on. And so uh, something that's really cool as we read Isaiah is uh, in the New Testament, Psalms, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy are the most quoted books by New Testament authors. Uh, and so there's a lot of uh, New Testament allusions that we see in both of these things. And so there's a level of familiarity that we have with Isaiah that we didn't have for, say, Amos when we were in there on Thursday. Um, but I'm going to give a quick summary of what's going on in Isaiah 6 and 9, and then we're going to do uh, kind of what I model my devotions after, what I'm trying to, what we're doing together in our Wednesday Bible reading groups, and that's to just look up in the text. What does this text teach us about God? To look in in the text. What does this teach us about ourselves? Um, and what we actually see is in this text, beholding God teaches us things about ourselves, um, and then lastly, we look out. How does this change the way we live as Christians, as image bearers, as husbands and brothers and sisters and wives and employees, uh, all of that. So the big summary, uh, starting in chapter six, Isaiah gets this vision um, during the year of King Uzziah, the reign of King Uzziah, of the throne room of God. And it is wonderful. It's magnificent. We're going to talk about that in a second. And in that throne room, God commissions Isaiah to go speak. Um, he says, who will I send? And Isaiah raises his hand um, at this point, completely unknowing what's going to be asked of him. And he says, here I am. And to a small degree, that's the call of discipleship. When we call to follow Jesus, we're responding to the beauty of him. But we ourselves don't even know where it's going to carry us, which is why Jesus um, warns his disciples to consider the cost of discipleship. Following Jesus takes us places we don't expect. And it sometimes takes us to hard places. And so that's what um, what we see in Isaiah is uh, he is going to go and he's going to preach repentance to a people whom God says these people aren't going to respond. They aren't going to understand. Their heads are going to become hardened in this. And it's actually um, in verses chapter 8, verses 8 through 13, which is a passage um, Jesus himself quotes when he's talking about parables and how um, a lot of times parables, instead of making the message more clear, it actually hardens people because they miss the point. And so Isaiah is going to go get sent. He's going to preach a message of judgment in hopes that people are going to repent, but God is saying they, they might not repent. I don't think they're going to repent because these people are stuck in their sin. And then um, what happens is, uh, I'm going to summarize just briefly what's happening in chapters 7 and 8, because it's kind of important for when we get to chapter 9, is uh, during this time, the king of Israel, uh, Ahaz, is kind of, or yeah, the king of Judah, excuse me, Ahaz, which is the southern kingdom, is nervous because in the north there is, um, Pekah, the king of Israel, and there's also Rezin, the king of Syria or Aram, depending upon what Bible translation you're looking at. It's all describing the same country. Um, they have kind of uh, made an alliance with each other, and they are now beginning to threaten Judah. And so Israel and Syria are threatening Judah. And in this interim passage, God comes to the king and he promises 
uh, the king of Judah, that they're going to be okay, that God is going to judge the other nations. Um, and that's where we actually see in Isaiah 7, the sign of Emmanuel. Um, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And we see that that son um, ultimately is Jesus, but in the specific context here, it's going to be a son named Maher Shalah Hashbaz, which is a fun thing to say if you want to say that. Um, and uh, how it's going to happen is God is going to send this nation of Assyria, and Assyria is going to judge um, by physically conquering Syria and Israel. But what we also see is there's going to be overflow, right? Assyria is not coming to simply judge Israel and Syria. There's going to be an overflow. They're going to now threaten Judah themselves. And that's going to be a tension that we have through the rest of this text, all of which we see God is in control of it. Um, and so now we get to chapter nine and he begins by talking about uh, there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And for the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of nations. And then this famous passage that, again, we see in Matthew 4, describing the ministry of Jesus himself, the true um, son of the virgin. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who wept in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them light has shone. And so from this in Isaiah 9, we see this promise that God is going to be faithful. God is going to cause his people to no longer be stricken by civil war, but through the son, um, God is going to bring a flourishing of this kingdom. And we see, as we'll always see in prophets, you're always going to see a duality of judgment and a promise of blessing, um, a duality of judgment and a duality of um, grace through repentance. And so um, the latter part of chapter nine, verses eight through 21, uh, that's where God's doubling down on the sinful nation of the northern kingdom of Israel who will not humble themselves and repent. And so that's kind of the summary. Uh, it's kind of disjointed. We skip a lot in between. We're only looking at the bookend chapters of six and nine. Um, but if you if you read those and you're kind of confused by it, it'll take you maybe 10 more minutes to read chapters seven and eight. And that provides a lot of helpful context for us as we look at this. And so there's a lot to study in here if we're doing an actual Bible study. And I encourage you guys to do that, actually studying the Bible, getting down, looking at words, highlighting repeated things, pulling out the study Bible and really getting in depth is, is a good uh, thing to have. It's like a, a good deep workout session, but oftentimes in the mornings, we don't have the ability to do that. And so that's why we're asking these questions is to have a basic staple of being able to look at a text and actually pull um, some things that help us worship in it. Because one thing that's great about Bible reading is that we often think of, um, for a Christian, reading our Bible is like this staircase that gets us to heaven. And if we can progress through our whole week keeping our Bible reading plan, maybe by Saturday morning, we have reached uh, the throne room of God, and now we have earned the right to come in. Um, but the truth is, as soon as we open God's word, Jesus brings us into his living room, right? This is God's living and abiding word of God. And so just opening this and hearing God um, is, is something incredible for us to encounter. And so we can... Um, certainly spend far more time in a text and get far more encouragement and far more admonition and far more whatever out of it. But also there's a level of cursory reading where we can begin to learn to be grateful for God and have our lives changed. And so those are the three questions we're working through here. So uh, let's dive into those three questions. When we look up, um, when we that is, what does this text teach us about God? There's a number of things uh, I want to point out here. The first is, the glory of God and his condescension. And so in uh, chapter six, I'm just going to read it here. It says, uh, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
and each had six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And so the first thing here is we see this unique picture into the throne room of God. And there's consistencies um, from what we see in Isaiah, what we see in Ezekiel, and what we see from John in Revelation um, of kind of languages beyond comparison. Trying to describe the seraphim, trying to describe the glory is something that people just spit word vomit on because it's indescribable. And, and that's because if we can understand the immense glory of God, um, then he's really not that special. Right. I can uh, there are things we, we can't even understand and use proper words to communicate the glory of Lolo Peak, let alone the infinite God who created that. And so they're wrestling with language here. But what we see is, is uh, kind of something that we forget. When we sing songs of worship, um, we sing songs about running into Jesus's arms. And we imagine um, kind of just the parable of the prodigal son of running into his arms. And that's not necessarily untrue. But what we actually see here is here we have Isaiah, who is used to hearing from the Lord. Um, right. He's a prophet. This isn't uh, something that's casual or that's uh, unfamiliar to him. But here he sees in a really clear and distinct way, God himself sitting on his throne and his first response to something as glorious, as wonderful, as powerful as God himself on the throne is not to run to him, but to actually realize compared to the greatness and holiness of God. Isaiah stands in danger. He says, he falls to his knees and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips from a people with unclean lips for I have seen the Lord. He acknowledges that because this God is so glorious and so pure and so wonderful that it is a threat for him in his weaknesses and in his sin to go towards that God, right? I always say this, uh, it's, it's no fault that fire catches gasoline on fire. It, it consumes it. And God is a holy fire and our inabilities to be as holy as God wants us to means that if we get too close, we will be consumed. God is so more, much more glorious than we can ever imagine. And that glory actually poses a threat to us because of our sin. But the same God who gave Isaiah this vision is the same God who actually condescends and makes a way for Isaiah to come and to be welcomed and to speak. And what is that way? The angel, the seraphim brings this burning coal. And it's, it's indicating a sense of pain, um, the sense of what we see in First Peter, this refining fire, and presses it to Isaiah's lips as a symbol of this prophet who's now speaking. And he says this, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What this is the good news of a glorious God is we cannot stand in his court, but God atones for our sins. And here we see Jesus already in this text, right? 
because the burning coal placed on Isaiah's lip caused him to proclaim a message of a Christ who would come, who did not take a coal to a lip, but a cross for our sins. And God, we now have access. The only way we can encounter this God and not be terrified is because Christ has atoned for us. He has taken away our sin. Uh, so many times in campus ministry or evangelism, I have people talk about their confidence before God. And I always want to ask them, why are you confident before God? What makes you think that this God that will hug you, will embrace you, that you will be safe? And the point isn't that we will be unsafe before God. Although when we see his glory, I think even the most devout Christian will shake at it. And yet God will draw us in. But when our sins are covered by Jesus, we have immense confidence before God as big and as powerful and as glorious as this. Why? Because all the things in us that would cause us to, to combust in the glory of God have been removed because Christ was combusted for us. He was burned for us. He was cut off for us. He was punished for us. And so now this throne room is ours to enjoy as a son instead of to cower in the corner like a slave. God is so immensely good to bring us into his throne room by the means of atonement. And so that is just wonderful and astounding. And what we see here, even in this throne room scene, is something um, that comes up uh, in what follows, right? Isaiah now is going to be commissioned to go out and to preach this message, which will actually uh, cause the people to not hear and to not see. And Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? And God says, for a long time. He basically says, until judgment comes until these people are judged by the foreign nation as a result of their sin. And so we see that this holy God is a God who judges. But we also see this in verse 13. And though a tenth of it re remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so even in judgment, there is a remnant that remains. There is a holy seed in which we could have refuge. And so the same God who judges is also the same God who gives a way for us to endure, who gives a way for us to move forward. And that is through this holy seed. That is through Jesus himself. To avoid God's judgment is to be part of this holy seed by grace through faith. And so we see God's judgment and we see God's mercy here. And so that's looking up. I spent uh, a decent amount of time there because it's great and it's glorious. And we're going to look at some more implications of that. We see the glory of God and his condescension. In verses 1 through 7, we see judgment and mercy in the seed in verse 13. And you see that also in chapter 9, right? The first half is mercy. The second half is judgment. And there's something that stands in between, which we'll look at in just a moment. Um, so this is now looking in. What does this mean about us? Well, uh, I always say that one of the most transformative things we, one of the best places that we learn about ourselves is by encountering the greatness of another. That seems counterintuitive because we're not looking at ourselves. We're looking at somebody else. But here we see when we encounter someone who is um, so much differenter than us, we see the places where we don't match up. And we see that we are not God. No one stands in the throne room of God and confuses the creator-creation uh, order. We see God as, creation, as, as the creator here. And because of that, when we look in at ourselves, we can see a lot of the places in this text where our hearts are prone to invert uh, that creator creation order, where we try to think that we know what's better. We try to think that we are God. And uh, one thing that's stood out to me is that uh, I call it looking for Egypt. Um, what we'll see as this book goes on, I actually don't know how long we'll be in Isaiah uh, in this Bible reading plan. Um, but 
God's people are, are seeing kind of a pattern. Anytime an, they're threatened by an enemy, God sends a bigger enemy to come and conquer that enemy. And that's God's grace. But what eventually happens is the people of Israel, whenever they see a threat, they begin to look to other nations. Why? Because in the past, God had used other nations to do this. And so they think that they're hoping in God, but what they're really hoping in are these other nations. And we see this specifically at one point with Egypt. Um, instead of trusting God, they're trusting in Egypt to come and deal with their circumstances. And we see this in verse 13. Um, this is speaking of the people who are in the northern tribe of or northern kingdom of Israel. It says the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. And there are seasons in our life um, where when we are in trials of either anxiety from our own sin, just the pressures of living in a broken world, we are so easy to look to Egypt and not to God. We're so easy to look to things that perhaps God has used in our lives to help us, to our spouses, um, to our churches, to um, uh, maybe even escaping into nature. And we look to those things which God might have used at different points in our lives to give us grace. But instead of seeing it as uh, a gift of grace, we make that gift to be God. And we're constantly looking for those things to save us, to satisfy us, to atone for us when it's only God himself who can do that. And this is where this is actually the um, what we see in Isaiah 8, which was paraphrased by Peter yesterday in 1 Peter 3, um, where in Isaiah 8, uh, the Lord says this, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so in our lives, we need to be able to look and see in all of the things that we have hoped in good things, perhaps at times we've hoped in. But are we looking at those good things and expecting them to be God things? In the midst of our tension of lives, when we, we feel the need, like when, when uh, Isaiah was in the throne room of God, he felt the need for an interceder, for an, inter, for an intercessor. He felt the need for something to make up where he was and who this God is. And there's going to be moments in our life where we feel that tension. And whatever we look to, that's what we think will actually get us there. But nothing gets us to that satisfaction except for Christ himself. Nothing brings us the confidence before God in the midst of life trials except for Jesus himself. And so where are we looking for Egypt when we could be looking for God? Where are we turning to things that are not God when God himself has offered his comfort and his peace to us in the completed work of Jesus Christ? Um, I also want to point out quickly two experiences we see that are true of us. We see an experience of God's salvation. What does it feel like to be saved by God? And then we see, secondly, the experience of God's Savior. Like, what is the experience we have, not only in salvation, but what's the experience we have under the rule and reign of God's Savior? I just want you to listen to the language that is used here in Isaiah 9, first in 2 through 5. So this is describing the experience of salvation. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff of, 
for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So here's this experience of salvation where God has taken care of everything. He has shined the warmth of his light onto our soul. It has caused us to increase in joy, right? We don't just have joy. Our boundaries for joy have been increased. It is joy abounding. It is more joy than we could even imagine. At what he points out, the joy of the harvest or when they divide the spoil. And so in our own lives, think of whatever brings us satisfaction in our culture. The harvest was this time of celebrating provision in this time. It was time of celebrating peace. And we have those moments in our culture. Perhaps you have those moments in your own culture. And we think, can God be better than this? Can the gospel really satisfy me more than this? And here we see that God's salvation brings us greater joy than any of those moments in your life. Um, why? Because he has removed the judgment. The rod is removed. The war is removed. The tumult is removed. And as Christians, we know that that is final and full because all of that was poured out on Jesus. The experience of our salvation is a unique experience. And that is for us to spend the rest of our lives learning to grow in. We don't experience it all at once. Even the people of Israel didn't experience this physical symbol of salvation in the same way. And so we don't automatically become saved and experience the full weight of our salvation. It comes in, in fits and spurts and we grow in that. But more and more, we are becoming more aware of the wonderful reality of what God did to save us. And then secondly, we see the experience of the Savior. And so, yeah, we're saved, we rejoice, but what does life look like to continue in God's kingdom? Well, we see this when he begins to describe the Savior in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so sometimes even in our Christian walk, we rejoice at our salvation. We're glad that we don't go to hell. Um, but then we begin to turn and start looking for Egypt again. We start to look to other things to satisfy us, to captivate us. But here we see that not only has God saved us, but he's given us a king, an enduring king, an eternal king. And what's his name? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And all four of those descriptions, there's an experience that we have as one under his rule, as wonderful counselor. This Jesus is sufficient to help us navigate the storms of this life. He has wisdom that is able to give us guidance when we don't know what to do. He is a mighty God, right? When we are in the presence of someone mighty who is on our sides, what do we do? We fear less things, not because things are any less fearful, but because we understand the strength of the God who's on our side. And when we are walking through life with Jesus, we see his might in all of it. Here is Jesus who defeated death itself by the glory of God. He was raised from the dead. Our experience is that we can hide ourselves in his might. He is the everlasting father. When will this, when will it stop being wonderful or safe to follow Jesus, even when it's hard? Never. Why? Because he is the everlasting father. We get to be with him forever. And he is the prince of peace. We have rest finally from our works. We have rest from our anxiety because our standing with God is no longer rooted in our own ability to work or to labor because Christ has done it all. And when we see how good this salvation is, when we see how good this Savior is, we now realize when we begin to look out 
When we go back to verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. We see how good it is to turn to this God. And this is the application of this text. In chapter 6, we see the holiness of God, that God atones for sins and welcomes people in. In chapter 9, we see the blessing of God, and we see the danger of those who do not turn and experience that blessing. And so for us, there's two things. One, in small ways, even believers daily turn to God. We turn and confess our sin. We examine places where we are turning to nations, turning to um, joys of this world to satisfy us where only God can. Um, but then on a, on a larger level, we, uh, we turn on in a way that's salvific. If we have never turned to a God like this, then we need to learn to do it. And how does this help us with our evangelism, right? When we look at verse or chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and chapter 9, verses 8 through uh, 21, we see how much greater it is to be saved by this God, to be judged by this God. Don't When we see this message, we see that we have only turned because God has touched our lips with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. It is not because of what we have done, right? Isaiah didn't climb into the throne room and go to the altar and grab the coal and put it on his lips and present himself to God. God invited him in. God pressed his lips against the uh, his lips to the coals. God atoned for him. We turn because God is gracious to us. And God will be gracious to our coworkers and to our families as we share the message of the gospel with them. And for you, it might be just like Isaiah, that you feel that you are proclaiming this message to people who are not listening. But that's again where we remember that we are the creation, not the creator. We do not know when and where God's fruit of the gospel will bear salvation in the lives of those around us, but we have hope because it saved us. And so we turn to God because he has shown himself trustworthy on the cross. Christ has atoned for us. Christ has taken away the rod by being struck with the rod of God's wrath for us. And because of that, we live distinctly. As God's people, our lives are not typified by false trust, by false gods, or by false actions, but instead in sincerity and love, we walk out the Christian faith because we have seen the one who was born, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So that's Isaiah 6 and 9. It's a gold mine. Um, this is low hanging fruit when we look at it because of how the New Testament authors interact with these texts. And it just makes me so wonderfully shocked that we will get to be in a throne room with greater confidence than Isaiah. Isn't that good? Isaiah's lips were touched with a metaphorical coal our bodies are robed in the real righteousness of Jesus. Man, to long for that day. And in light of that, it is our joy to live differently for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you um, that you have given us uh, not just a book of propositions, not just a book of history, but a book that interacts with real people um, who are wrestling with false fears just like us. And yet the same was true for them as is for us, that you make a way through the Holy Seed. You make salvation through judgment in your Messiah. And so, Lord, help us to turn to him, to trust him, and to share that good news with those who are in our circles. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Have a good Monday. We will catch you later.